it gets in problems because then it's on its own. Um, but as long as we stay rooted in the power of what Jesus has done for us in the cross, uh, then we stay on course. Because the, the incident that took place all those years ago is still as relevant today as it ever was. And the verse for a few moments tonight, friends, is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. There'll be another, uh, a number of other verses I'll make reference to, but this will just launch us forward. And it says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, being saved. It is the power of God. The title for tonight's message is cataclysmic. It's a long word. I'll try and explain it in a moment. But the reality is this, friends, that we thank God that we have something to look forward to. It's called Resurrection Sunday. Uh, don't forget to put your clocks forward, by the way, one hour tomorrow night, otherwise you'll miss the first part of the service. And, uh, but here's the truth. To get to a resurrection, you always have to go through a cross. It's the same in life. And uh, you always have to navigate a cross. Leon Morris says that Christianity is a religion about a cross. It is. And as Christian believers in Arena Church, we affirm that unreservedly and unapologetically. We believe in the power of the cross. It seems foolishness to others. But to us, it is the power of God. <clears throat> in fact, it's my contention, friends, that actually the Christian church is in danger of underplaying the power of the cross. Hence the title. What does cataclysmic mean? Well, it means a violent upheaval. It sometimes has a relevance to deluge, storm, and flood. But of course, metaphorically, it talks about shifts and changes. You may have been in a company where there was cataclysmic change. Uh, you may have been in a situation where everything turned around. It's cataclysmic. And here's the truth, friends, that with respect to the cross, it wasn't just about our sin problem. Thank God it was about that. You see, sin's horrible. Sin is really, in its root meaning, telling us that we miss the mark. Sin spoils our relationship with Almighty God. It stains our lives. Sin separates. Sin spreads. It, it, it pulls us into places, friends, where we didn't ought to be. It does things to people's lives that God never intended. It robs them of purpose and destiny and hope. And Jesus came to take away our sin, to forgive us and to give us a brand new start. The old hymn says there was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and left us in. But here's the truth, friends. It's not just about sin because everything changed at the cross. Because Jesus Christ in the power of the cross really did bring in a new order. And we thank God tonight for his power. And I want to just give you a few things tonight, briefly, that speak about what took place at the cross. New things, the seven. Don't worry, I'm going to run through them pretty quickly. And when the Bible speaks about the word new in the New Testament, it's not just speaking about new in time, it's speaking about new in quality. So one of the things that we're going to talk about tonight is the fact that God's called us to love one another. That wasn't a new thing, it was mentioned in the Old Testament. But it was new in terms of its standard. It was new in terms of its depth. It was new in terms of its quality. And everything changed in the power of the cross. Here's the first thing that happened, friends. There was a new covenant. Luke 22 tells us that when Jesus broke bread, just like we've done tonight, <clears throat> and shared it with the disciples and then drank from the cup, he says, this, is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Those of you that read the Old Testament will know that covenant was sealed by blood, uh, blood of animal sacrifices. It was done again and again and again and again. There was a special day once a year, Yom Kippur, where the 
High priest would go into the holiest of all on behalf of the people and sprinkle the mercy seat with blood again to atone for the sins of the people. It ratified the covenant. What is a covenant? It's an agreement. It's a contract. In fact, some of you that bought mortgages some years ago would have sometimes had the word covenant written into it. And uh, it's an agreement. It's a contract that was initiated by God and presented to man. And when Jesus Christ died upon the cross, he brought about a new agreement, a new covenant that, that swallowed up everything that had taken place in the past. The Bible tells us in Jeremiah that it was a covenant that wasn't to do with the exterior anymore, but it was a covenant to do with writing things on our heart. The Bible tells us, friends, that the covenant wasn't anymore ethnically tied to a nation, but all those that were in Jesus Christ actually were recognized as the nation of God. 1 Peter 2.9 says that you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. The new covenant tells us that whereas in the old covenant it was perpetuated by many sacrifices, in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 12 it says that this man offered one sacrifice for sins forever and then sat down at the right hand of God. His name is Jesus. And the cross, friends, ratified a brand new covenant agreement with the people that would come unto him. It's not defined by color of skin. It's not defined by age. It's not defined by race. It's not defined by ethnicity. It's defined by relationship. It's defined by us coming to the cross and finding an agreement with God that has ratified that by the power of Jesus in the blood and says, you can be mine. It's amazing. At the cross, we had a new community. I was reading again the opening chapters of a great book called uh, Courageous Leadership. <clears throat> and there was a Bible college student that was sat in class one day and the lecturer went off, off his notes. And uh, that's always a good sign. I used to try and get our college lecturers off notes. It was always more interesting than being on notes. But the reality is he went off notes and he began to paint a picture of the church. And the Bible college student says that the, the, the lecturer began to talk about an Acts 2 community. Of believers that would come together with a vision for life that was so beautiful it took their breath away. Bold, creative, dynamic. That people couldn't resist it. Verse 47 says, And the Lord added to that number daily those that were being saved. The student went on to say that the lecturer's unscripted words were as much a lament as they were a dream. A sad longing for the restoration of the first century church. I had never imagined a more compelling vision In fact, that day, I didn't just see a vision, I was seized by it. Suddenly, there were tears in my eyes, and a responsive chord rose up within my soul. Where I wondered, had the beauty gone? Why was the power not evident in the contemporary church? Would the Christian community ever see the potential realized again? Since that day, I've been held hostage to the powerful picture of the Acts 2 dream, painted by my college lecturer in the classroom all those years ago. And in the weeks and months after that first lecture, I was haunted by the question, what if a true community of God could be established in the 20th and 21st century? What would happen in Jerusalem if it could happen in Chicago? And such a movement of God would transform the world and usher people into the next. And that Bible college student friend has given his life to building one of the world-famous churches in Chicago land, that this Sunday will have well over 30,000 people attending a local church because he saw the dream of community. And friends, people are desperate for community. They don't understand it, but they know they need it. They're desperate for togetherness. They're desperate to be drawn to something that is bigger than themselves. And at the cross, Jesus ordered and ordained a new community. 
He talked thirdly, friends, about a new certainty. And certainty in Christian circles at times can be misunderstood. It can be mistaken for arrogance and belligerence, and we certainly don't want to go there. But here's what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy. He says, I know in whom I believed, and I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. And here's the truth, friends. There's nothing wrong in being certain about the fact that God found us. Though we were lost, he came looking for us and rescued us. You see, the problem with a a postmodern world is that the only thing they're certain of is that they're certain of nothing. And God wants to bring us to a place where we're certain that we rest in the love of God, that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, and that he's able to keep that which we've committed to him right until that day where he calls for us to be with him forever. The cross brought in a new commandment. In John 13 and 34 to 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. There's been a thousand, a million songs, poems that have been written by love, and yet so often people seem still to be looking for it and not finding the right answer. The love that Jesus spoke about was exemplified in the cross. It was a love that wasn't just emotional or mushy. It was rooted in the will. He said, I will. It responded to the heartbeat of God and put something into action that expressed the greatest expression of love that the world has ever seen. And Jesus said, as I have set that example, I want you to implement it as well. I want you to love people. I want you to love one another. I want that love to be rooted and resting in your will. I want it to be so incredible that people will be drawn to it. Because when we love one another, it becomes the badge of discipleship that reflects the fact that we're devoted followers of the Lord. At the cross, we had a new challenge, a new calling, sorry. In Matthew's Gospels, chapter 5, 6, and 7, we have what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And here's the truth. When Jesus came to that situation, he came to people that were weighed down by religious rules. He came to people that were oppressed by an invading army. And people were looking for a cataclysmic change, but they were looking for it politically. And Jesus refused to go there. You see, what he came to bring about, friends, was not a political change, but a kingdom change. And he brought in a new kingdom, a kingdom that spoke about his rule and reign. He began to say to people that you've heard it said this, but I say unto you. And you may remember some years ago that we didn't lower the bar, but we raised the bar in Arena Church. Out of the teachings of Matthew 5, 6 and 7. He issued him, friends, a directive of fresh values and purpose, of purity and integrity that only can spill out of the heart that's been touched by the crucified Lord because it's impossible to live this in our own strength. Sixthly, friends, he brought in a new commitment. It wasn't to the patriotism of a nation, but it was to the person of a savior. In Luke's gospel, he says, why do people call me Lord, Lord, and then do not do what I say? In John 15, he says that you are my friends if you do what I say. And here's the truth, friends. God has called us to radically follow him. Now, the word radical, sadly, has been hijacked in our vocabulary in these days. So when the word's mentioned on the news screens, TV, it's often depicting people that are crazed, that have sometimes taken other people's lives mercilessly and unnecessarily for the cause of misplaced religious zeal. That's not what I'm talking about here. But... I was just reading this week again a book that was written 30-odd years ago by Arthur Wallace, a great church leader in this nation. And it was called The Radical Christian. 
And if you pardon the pun, friends, it gets right to the root meaning of what the word means because that is the root meaning of the word radical. It speaks about coming to the roots of the cause of why we live. And in Luke 3 verse 9, it says that the axe is laid to the root of the tree. What he says, true radicalism is a product of the cross because the axe lays root, because the axe lays itself to all that is in us that is not of Christ. And true radicalism, friends, is that we continually apply the cross to our lives. Just talking to our Alison two or three hours ago, and we were talking about one or two things, and the fact is that God's interested in the little things of our life, never mind about the big things. And the closer you get to Jesus, the more you realize that the little things are actually pretty big to him. And he wants to lay the axe to the root of anything that doesn't reflect the Lord, so that he may take you and cause you to be all that he's ordained you to be for his praise and for his glory. You see, through the cross, friends, God is simply looking for Christians that will read his word and implement it. You say, well, that seems pretty straightforward, Phil. I have to say, friends, with respect, that sometimes I have to look really hard to find them. And so does God in his world. And he's looking for people in these days that will understand what what he ushered in in the power of the cross. And that is a radical obedience and commitment to what he says in our lives. No questions, no complaining, no compromising, no fudging, no delaying. But getting to what he says, meaning what he says, and implementing it for his praise and for his glory. A couple of weeks ago, we had the joy of holding our area conference in terms of the network of churches called Assemblies of God, of which we belong to. Our keynote speaker was Mal Fletcher. He's an Australian that resides in this nation now. And he brought a great contribution to the conference. Here's what he said. He says, as a teenage boy, he says, what attracted me to the Christian faith was commitment. He says, the verse that drew me to Jesus was Matthew 16, 24. If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And seventhly, friends, when Jesus died upon the cross, he ushered in a new course. And at the end of Matthew's gospel, chapter 28, Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see, we are a community arena, but we're also a people that are called to a cause. And here's what happens when we respond to the Lord. See, a cause is, is a true reason and motive for action. And when we feel the call of God in our lives, so the call of God comes to each of us through the power of the cross, there are consequences. Changes begin to take place in our life. And if you say to me, Phil, well, I don't feel sort of perfect tonight, then worry, we're being saved. We're saved and we're being saved. It's a continual process, but if you'll commit to it, it'll continue to change you. But out of call and consequences comes a course. And you will notice that this church is in a great season of a course. It's a course to action. It's not a course to passivity. It's a call to reach out to a broken world that's on the doorstep of our church and in the far-flung nations. But it's desperate, friends, about reaching people for Jesus Christ and encouraging them to become devoted followers of the Lord, just like us. There's no other course to live for. There really, really isn't. And it was ushered in on the day of the cross. There's the backdrop. In photographic history, that's become an iconic picture because it literally took place on September the 11th, 2001, when many of you will be aware, in a sun-kissed New York morning, clear blue skies, two planes flew overhead with crazed intent to demolish the Twin Towers 1 and 2. And over 3,000 people 
were blown into eternity. When I think about those 3,000, I think about wives and husbands. I think about kids that dad didn't come home from work. I think about grandparents. The reality is, friends, that even as a small estimate, there were 50,000 people affected that day. 50,000 people. And a girder fell right into the debris. You see its shape. People said to me, well, where was God in all that? Well, God, friends, was weeping in the midst of the debris and destruction. I want to tell you a story that I read some time ago in Time magazine about Rick Rescola. Rick was a veteran of the Vietnam War. And uh, he'd retired from the army and became a head of security for Morgan Stanley Investment Bank. They occupied 22 floors of Tower 2. Everybody at work that morning. And over the years, Rick had uh, ran his own evacuation drills, much to the annoyance of high-powered bankers when they were, their meetings were interrupted, they were told to get off the phone, and they were told to do their drills. But he insisted on it, and people knew it with military position because of the leadership of Rick Rescola. So we come to the morning just after 9 o'clock of 9-11, as it's become known in the history of time. And he saw Tower 1 hit and he realized straight away that there was a problem. He sprang into action. And the practice evacuation plan almost worked to perfection. The reality is, friends, that out of 2,687 Morgan Stanley employers, only eight died. He got everybody else out. Time magazine tells the story that uh, he rang his wife. He told her that he loved her. And then it says this. It says, Rascola was last seen on the 10th floor going upwards And shortly after that, the tower collapsed and his remains have never been found. And the article was entitled, One Person Who Made a Difference. But there's a greater story. And it's Good Friday. And it's the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who the Bible tells us thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And he humbled himself. Became as a servant and obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And whilst we thank God for Rick's amazing heroism to save two and a half thousand lives, the bigger truth is that the man called Jesus' friends came to save the world. He came to save the world. And it was cataclysmic. When Jesus died on the cross, friends, he did it for our sin. But he brought about a new covenant. And he brought about a new community. It's called the church. And here we are 2,000 years plus later on a good Friday evening as community. Celebrating all that he's done. He brought about a new certainty. That whatever you've committed to God in the quietness of your heart and life, he's able to keep to that eternal day. He brought about a new commandment that despite all of our differences in personality and makeup and likes and dislikes, we could love one another that flows out of the depth of our will. He brought out a new calling that responds to the raised bar of the kingdom of God. He brought about a new commitment that says, I'm going to find out what Jesus says in the word. And without equivocation, I'm going to put it into action. He brought about a new course. People that would be outward facing. They would say, we're not just going to settle for doing nice church services. There's a broken, lost world that needs to hear the love of Jesus in the power of the cross. The message of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing. It still is today. 
Maybe even you've been at work today and people have laughed and derided about the message of the cross. But to those that believe, it's the power of God. We're the whole realm of nature mine. That were an offering far too small. Love so amazing. So divine, it demands my soul, my life, my all. I wonder if you'd stand with me, please.